So I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is going to be basically our starting point where we're going to where we're going to launch out from. This is this is going to be like our, our skeleton of sorts. And then we're going to work all over the place in the scripture to deal with some of these things. 1 Peter 1 Let's read verses 14 through 19. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. So brethren, let's begin here, verse 14, where Peter begins. This is his call to us for holy living. And it's a call, really, that you might find in other areas of Scripture in the terms of put off the old self, put off the old man, put off the old person, and put on the new. And he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And his point is pretty clear. You used to live in certain ways, in in passions of ignorance, uh, passions of your former ignorance. And basically he's saying, listen, don't be conformed by those things anymore. Don't walk in those ways anymore. And there's a point to why he's saying it this way. He says, passions of former ignorance, brethren, because these were deeds that were done. These were passions you had, desires of sin, when you were filled with sin, that were done in ignorance. Not in in ignorance of the fact that they were unrighteous. You knew they were unrighteous. In fact, I've, I've talked to a lot of you before about your past and how you knew that some of the things you were involved in were not good. They, they, they didn't sit well with you. Uh, they, they didn't actually seem right. And so you, it wasn't an ignorance that you knew they were unrighteous, but it was an ignorance of, of this. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It was an ignorance of that kind of thing. Listen, Proverbs 15, 3 says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the good and the evil. We were ignorant of that kind of thing. We were ignorant of the fact that God saw and would bring judgment upon every deed that we committed. And in, in the passions of our former ignorance, we spoke like it says here in Psalm chapter 10. Listen to this, verse 11. He says in his heart, this is about the wicked. He says in his heart, God has forgotten He has hidden his face, and he will never see it. And the psalmist goes on, verse 13. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call it into account? 
See, brethren, that's, that's the ignorance that we were walking in. We did not see that reality. And Peter is calling us to recognize that truth. That in, our, in our former ignorance, we did not see or recognize that God was going to call every one of our deeds into account. And Peter's argument is actually quite logical. He says, you didn't know that and you lived this way. Now you know that. Now you know you're not ignorant anymore. You know he's going to call your deeds into account. You ought not live that way anymore. It's not fitting for you to do that. So basically, uh, brethren, the way Peter puts this, it ought, it ought to drive us to think that if we can walk in the same things that we once walked in when we had ignorance, and it does not cause us to recoil in horror, there is a serious problem. A serious problem. Because we're not in ignorance anymore, and we can't pretend to be. And if the same sins that you once lived in do not cause you horror to think about committing the same things, brethren, there's a problem. There's a major problem in us. And so Peter elaborates on this point a little bit later. Uh, go over to chapter 4. Look with me at chapter 4 in verse 3. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You see, his, his point is, folks, you've, you've had enough. Enough is enough. You've had enough of that garbage. you had enough of that sin. And ought we to recognize that to be the case? Brethren, before sin was free for the taking, and we took every bit of it, everything we wanted in regards to sin we had, we ate it up. It was free, and, and, and we, we bought it all. And we, we, had, we had plenty of it. We built up a pretty large pile of sin on our own. And Peter's point is, don't add to that pile anymore. You have a new pile now. You know, the Bible talks about in these terms of, of wood, hay, and stubble, and precious stones and jewels. And one on the day of judgment is going to withstand the fire. Brethren, we have a big pile. Some of you, like me, years before you ever became a Christian, you have a big pile of wood, hay, and stubble, and it's going to burn up, brethren. Don't add to it. Add to the pile that's going to, that's going to withstand the fire, the precious jewels. So he says, enough of that. You've piled up that. Put away that garbage. Put away that life. You don't, that's not for you anymore. Something else is for you. Put away those passions of former ignorance. And brethren, in this battle, we need to be willing to fight to the death. That's what it is. It's a battle to the death. You can't give up. This isn't one that you fight a couple rounds and you see how it goes. This is one when you enter in, you either win or you lose. And look at this. Uh, chapter 2, listen to how Peter says this. Chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
Brethren, don't think for a minute that you're not in a war. You are in a war. And you're in a war constantly. And we have to be battling this. Listen, I remember when I first became a Christian, there was a girl that came up to me. And, and listen, I don't know everything that went around that particular night or whether or not that girl is even a Christian anymore. But she did say something to me that I thought, that I think even to this day is about as true as it can be. She came up to me and she said, you are now an enemy of the devil. And brethren, that is true. Those who love Christ are no friend of Satan. And those who love Christ and hate sin are at war with the flesh. They are at war, brethren. And listen, this battle is one that you have to win. You have to win this battle. You really don't have a choice. I want you to hear the words of Jesus. These are well-known words. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 43. I want you to hear these words, and I do not want you to dilute them in your heart. Do not dilute these words. These are serious words. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Listen, Jesus says it very plainly. You have two options. You either cut it off or you go to hell. There's no middle option. Jesus does not give you an option to say, keep your sin and enjoy it and go on your way happily to heaven. He does not say that. That's not in there. There's not a third option. You either cut it off or you find yourself in judgment, brethren. These are serious words. This is undoubtedly probably the most radical call to holiness in all of the Bible. And so many times Christians will read it and they just wash it right away because they think that is so extreme. And it is. Listen, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. That's, that's excessive, uh, stating something in an excessive way. But he does it to show you the seriousness of killing sin. He doesn't do it just to speak in, in profound ways. He does it to tell you, you have got to win this. There's no other option. So why does Jesus speak like this? Well, I think it's this. I think Jesus tells us words like this because he knows that to kill sin often will feel like cutting off a hand or cutting off a foot or gouging out an eye. It it feels that tied to you. It feels like it's that much a part of you that to remove it would be like cutting off a foot or cutting off a hand, that it's so deep-rooted that even sometimes it might seem like removing it would actually not be good. 
or actually not even be necessary or impossible. How could you take a, how could you take a, a sword and just cut your hand off? That would be a really hard thing to do. And Jesus is saying, you need to do it. You, ha- you have to do it. And his point is that the hand or the foot or the eye is actually so problematic to the body and so damaging that to not remove it would actually be far worse than violently cutting that hand or that foot off. It is, he says it's actually better. It's actually better for you to be crippled and go your way into heaven than to keep that hand. It's actually better, brethren, than for you to want to keep that flesh-eating, diseased foot on your body. But what do many Christians do? They don't do that. They don't cut the hand off. They don't cut the foot off. They look down at that diseased, sickly foot and they think, I'll bandage it. I'll wrap it up. I'll stop thinking about it and maybe it'll just go away. They think they'll busy themselves with other things and eventually it will just fade out of their mind and it'll just magically get better. But it doesn't. It never works that way. And they realize that doesn't work. So then what? Well, they're going to take some kind of step, some kind of measure, but it's not enough. They think, okay, we'll put a little ointment on this foot. I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take some minimal precautions not to bring any more damage. And they convince themselves that cutting it off is not absolutely necessary. But brethren, that's not how you fight sin. You need to set in your mind to take radical measures against sin. You need to walk over, you need to grab that knife, and you need to cut that thing off. You need to take the sword that has been sharpened with the truth of God's Word, and you need to remove that unhealthy, damaging, sinful, wicked appendage from your body. And I don't care how difficult it might be. I don't care how uncomfortable it might be. Brethren, it is better for you to go in as a crippled and hobble your way or crawl your way into the kingdom of God, having fought to the death about sin, having fought to the end. It's that important, brethren. Cut it off. Peter calls you to holiness. Put away those passions of former ignorance. Put them away. They are not fitting for you as God's people. And then he says this, He wants to give us a little bit of rationale for this. So go back over there to 1 Peter. We're going to read 14 and 15 together. Actually, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now here's some some reasoning here. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter's reasoning is because God is holy, you ought to be holy. You are made in His image. You've been made to be His people. And therefore, it is your duty to reflect Him rightly. God is a most holy God. And therefore, His people ought to be a most holy people. This is a good place, I think, for us to 
maybe add, uh, define some of these things because oftentimes I think when people think holiness, they don't actually think what the word properly means. Even if you type it in, you type in holiness online and you get all sorts of synonyms and none of them are actually synonyms for what the word actually means. The word does not mean not sinful or righteous. It doesn't mean that. Now, those things necessarily come along with holiness. They're not separate from it necessarily, but they are not in and of themselves what holiness means. Holiness is actually to be set apart. You could translate it distinct. You could translate it different. You could translate it consecrated. You could translate it separate. The idea is that to be holy is to be set apart from everything else, distinct, different. And I think one way for us to understand this that is a bit helpful is the way in which the Bible uses this word in regards to the Holy Spirit. You see, there's all kinds of other spirits. There's demonic spirits, all sort of evil spirits. There's good spirits. <laughs> there's, but what the Bible is doing in calling the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is they are, it is a distinguishing mark that He is different than every other spirit. He is in a category all His own. He's not like any other spirit. As the Spirit of God, He is the Holy Spirit, distinct, separate, out from the rest. And the reason I say all that is because Peter is actually quoting from a text in the Old Testament. He's bringing us back to a passage in the Old Testament. And I think the reason he's doing that is to remind us that this idea of holiness for God's people is not some new thing. God has been concerned about holiness in the life of his people from the start. So he takes us back to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, it says, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter quotes that. He says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's what he's, that's what he's tying it to. And the interesting thing is if you go back to that context, you might read that and you might think, well, that's interesting. Because in the, in the point where God is telling them, be holy for I am holy, he's teaching them about the animals that they're allowed to eat. There are clean animals and there's unclean animals. And he is admonishing them, you cannot eat the unclean animals. And, and I think if we have a wrong idea of holiness, this can be quite confusing for us. Because we might think, okay, holiness means not sin. God told the Israelites, be holy, and then he tells them all these animals not to eat. That means that is fundamentally a sin because that's what holiness means. And therefore, we as, as God's people, that's our law. We don't eat those animals. Otherwise, we're sinning and we're not holy. But what we miss is what God is doing is separating the Israelites, his people, from the nations. That's what he's doing. He's making them look different than the surrounding peoples and the surrounding nations. He wants to set them apart. And so what we see, another passage that I think is a, a pretty helpful for us, we read it in the beginning, but I want to go back. Leviticus chapter 20. You have some similar ideas, but we get some clarity on exactly what God means when he says that he wants his people to be holy. Leviticus 20, starting in verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. 
And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detest them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. See, God's point is that He is separating them. He's setting them apart. They're supposed to be holy. They are His people. And so for us, the application is basically this. God continues to desire that His people are a holy people. He was concerned about it then. He's concerned about it now. But the difference is we are not Israelites under the Old Covenant. That old covenant's passed away with its law. We come in under the new covenant. And we need to find out how has God desired His people under the new covenant to be holy people. Because God, brethren, is a holy God. He's not like other gods. You see that in the Bible. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, Our rock is not like their rock. Our God is not like the other so-called gods of the world. There's a lot of other people out there. And Christians ought to be different. There's a lot of other religions out there, and ours ought to be different, brethren. And so I want you to see this with me, James chapter 1. James 1, starting in verse 26. If anyone thinks his if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart this person's religion is worthless. See that's that's different from the world. The world speaks however they want. They say whatever they want. They say it whenever they want. No filter. The Christian doesn't live like that. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue. It is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Listen, you see it. There's, there's a pure an undefiled, or as you might find in the Old Testament, a clean religion. It is one that is not only unstained from the world, not sinning, keeping yourself clean, keeping yourself from the things, as we saw in the Old Testament, that are unclean, keeping yourself from sin, unstained from the world, but that's just the negative side. That's just one piece. But the pure and good and godly religion that is undefiled before God the Father, is also actively pursuing righteousness. It's not just not sinning, but it is actively 
seeking to care and visit those in need, to care for the orphan and the widow. See, this is just one little piece. This is obviously not all of it. But the point is for you to be a distinct and separate people from the world. The world doesn't look like that, brethren. The world does not look like that. We as Christians are to look like that. You hear this all the time. Slogan, be different. In, this, in the Christian sense, that's true. You are to be different. Not, not in the sense that the rest of everybody else is just lame and not cool and I want to be different. But brethren, you ought to be different in the sense that your devotion and your care and your, your, everything about you is that you would constantly to know God more and to serve Him more and make Him known in the world. That's how you ought to be different. That your, your driving force is always to please God. In that sense, you ought to be different. God is holy and He's about His glory. And therefore, you as His people ought to be holy and be about His glory in the same way. And then Peter gives us a warning. Go back over to 1 Peter. Look at verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Brethren, Peter is calling us to not be hypocrites. That if you are going to call God your Father, it is pertinent that you act like He is your Father. He is pointing His finger and saying to everyone who would, who would dare to do such a thing, to say God is their Father, to walk as obedient children. Because what are children supposed to do in relation to their parents? If we had any of our children out here, we could have them quote to us Ephesians 6.1. Obey. That's what they're to do. They're to obey their parents. They're to respect their parents. And, and especially in this context, respect their father and obey their father. And God brings this up. Earlier in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, he says to the rebellious Israelites, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, then where is my honor? See, that this is the most basic rule for human existence. Children honor and respect and obey their fathers. And so what happens when a child doesn't do this? What happens when a child does not obey their father? Well, it would seem to show that the child in question, or the so-called child, is not actually a child of the so-called father. That's what it would display. If they're not listening and they're disobedient, either that father is not a good father or the child doesn't think that the father has the right over him as he does. And my son is supposed to obey me, just as your children, if you have them, are supposed to obey you. And for the most part, he does. But it, listen, if one of my neighbors, some of you know Enrique, Enrique, if he comes over here, he comes in this door and goes back there and tries to tell my son to go out and start picking rocks up off his driveway. My son would probably not obey him. Probably also be very scared. But nevertheless, the point is this. 
Enrique does not have the place to demand obedience from my son. My son is not his son. I'm his father. He obeys me. So here's the problem then. What happens when Christians or people who call God their father act towards him how my son would act towards Enrique when they don't obey? When they act as though he has no right over them to say what he can or cannot do or how he can or cannot act? They put on display that God is not, in fact, their father, that he does not have a right over them. And you see this in other areas of Scripture. Titus chapter 1. Verse 16. says, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Listen, there are people in this world that profess to know God. We see them all the time. Drew probably sees them more than anybody out on Fremont Street. But they come in and they say, I know God. I know Jesus Christ. Listen, some of you were there. And I don't mean to take a sideways thing here, but I'm going to for a minute. Some of you were there at the abortion clinic and you saw that lady who kept saying she's a Christian. She knows God. She prays. We even heard her play her testimony. And she's sitting there and she's looking like a prostitute. She actually told us she was one. She works for that wicked man who is right next door to the abortion clinic. You guys saw it with your own eyes. Someone who so emphatically wanted to say that she was a Christian and wanted each of you who were there to acknowledge that she did know Jesus Christ. And yet it's very evident that she's not. Her works make her detestable before God. Her works deny her. They show that she is a liar. And you have places in town, that central Christian where she came from, liars and damning people. This woman thinks that she knows God and she does not know God. She shows up to that church and they baptize her the first week she was ever there. That woman, apart from the grace of God, will find herself in judgment. And there's people out there that are speaking lies and leading people into that deception. And there's people out there that profess to know God but they deny Him by their works. They don't know Him. God is not their Father. God calls them to be obedient, and they look at God and say, Who are you? I do what I want. I'll only come to you when I need something. Their works, brethren, their works betray them. They show them to be something other than what they are. They're false. They're frauds. They're fakes. Brethren, the Word of God would call us to don't be a hypocrite. Folks, don't be a fraud. Don't be a liar. Don't profess yourself to be something and have your works show that you're not. Live in accordance with your profession. And lastly, go back over to 1 Peter. Peter.
Peter wants us to consider the cost and, and let that lead us to holiness. So let's read these verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter wants us to consider something that ought to drive us to holiness. And there's a lot of things that might drive us to holiness. There's a lot of things that might cause us to consider our sin rightly and therefore lead us to holiness. I thought of a couple of them that might have been might have been useful, valid things to bring up. One would be that we don't consider the punishment for sin. You see this, Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And listen, there's a lot of ways in which this text could be properly applied, especially in the sense of a judicial context. But for us, I want us to see how it's it's true in regards to our sin and holiness. Brethren, because the fact that judgment for our sin is not executed immediately, immediately, we, we we feel capable to just keep a little bit of that around. But if it wasn't that way, consider the fact that your next sin, God would judge you. Your next sin that you were to commit, God would fully and completely judge you for it. Would you commit it? Would you think the same way? Probably not. You would probably be much more careful to walk in an upright way. You'd be much more careful to walk in holiness. But because God does not do that, because God does not bring the judgment for our sin immediately upon sin, and there's grace, brethren, our hearts are willing to concede a little bit of sin. It's evil. It's wicked, brethren. It's wicked to live like that. Because the sentence against our evil deeds are not executed speedily, we're willing to walk in it. Another one might be this. We don't consider the effects, or rather the future effects of what sin will produce. Listen to this. Lamentations 1, 8, and 9. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despised her. For they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. Brethren, the reality is our sin defiles us. It makes us filthy. And Israel became filthy by their deeds and by their sin and their idolatry. And the Bible says that the land vomited them out. Vomited them out. And his main point is they didn't, they took no thought of their future. God promised them that. He said, if you walk in these ways, I will judge you and you will be cast out. If you persist in this sin, you will be vomited out of the land. And what did they do? They persisted in it. They continued. They took no thought of their future. They did not consider the result of what their sin would produce. And this is often the case. Brethren, we don't take thought 
We don't take thought of the future. I was just talking about it with David this morning. How you, you can look back and you can see people that have said, hold on a second. If we start going down this road, we're going to end up way over there. And at the time, people are going, oh, you're ridiculous. That's never going to happen. And then here we are. Here we are in the things that people 15 years ago said, we're going to be in if we go down this road. Sin starts small, brethren. Sin starts small. You look at it in the Bible. It's, it's like a pattern, right? You see David. First, he sees. Then he covets. Then he takes. Then he hides. All of that. You see Achan, the same thing. He sees the things he wants. He covets them. He desires them. He takes them. He brings them home. He buries them in the dirt. It's, it builds on itself. People don't go out and become serial killing adulterers. They don't do that overnight. They get a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there. And they work their way to that kind of thing. Sin begins small. And you need to consider, if you're in a position where you are, you are battling with a sin that you are, you're fighting in your flesh to not commit, and you know it's disobedience to walk in it, and you are in that battle, you need to consider your future. You need to consider whether or not if you commit this, how much terrible your communion with the Lord will be. You need to consider where it will lead you. How far down the line of sin are you going to end up if you go down this road? Will you actually find satisfaction in it? Consider your future, brethren. Oftentimes, brethren, small, and it grows until a place that you are in somewhere where you never intended to be. You are living and walking in all sorts of unrighteousness and sin that you would have never thought yourself to be because you were not thinking about the future effects of sin. And if you don't consider this just like it was for the Israelites, your fall will be terrible. But Peter gives us a different reason than, than both of those. However powerful those might be, Peter's reasoning must be. Brethren, it must be more powerful for us. It has to be. So let's see this. He says, you were ransomed. You were, you were ransomed from your futile ways with the precious blood of Christ. Folks, you were bought. We just sang it in those songs. You were bought. You were purchased. And Jesus didn't come along with a monetary gift and pay for you. He bought you with his own blood. He purchased you with himself. And I want you to catch the weight of this. And I know this seems somewhat of an odd way to illustrate this, but this is really the only way I feel like I can get the point across. So you're going to have to bear with the illustration. I want you to imagine yourself having been born a slave. Your family were slaves all before you. And you were born into something that you could do nothing about. You were brought into this world a slave. And not only are you a slave, but you are a slave to the most wicked, evil master imaginable. And there's no end in sight for you. You will be a slave to this person until the day you die. There's no changing this. And now imagine a free person comes along and he sees you out there in the field. You're working and you are frail and you are sickly 
and you are ultimately of no use to anybody because you cannot do anything. You are so near death. You are incapable of any work. And you are but a body. You're, you're a body that is of no value and, and you have nothing to offer but instead are in total need of everything. And this free person comes in and offers to redeem you, to purchase you, to buy you out from that slavery. But no amount of gold or silver will do. Your master will not sell you for anything. He's the most evil, wicked master. Why would he do that? And so he won't sell you for anything but a transfer. The only thing that will work is if that person will give themselves in a life of labor for you. And so he does that. He purchases you and buys you and sells himself in a life of labor and you go free, ransomed from a life of destruction and evil. And that's what Peter's getting at, brethren. Peter wants you to know you were bought. You were ransomed. You were purchased out from that. Christ could have left you where you were, but he didn't leave you there. And he bought you. But he didn't just buy you and say, go out away. Now I got to work for this. He bought you and brought you into his family. God adopted you and made you an heir along with Christ. Friends, you were, you were on your way to hell. You had a one-way ticket. We both did, you and I alike. We both did, on our way to hell, on a one-way ticket, and there were no stops along the way. And God intervened. He stepped in. And though you hated him, and you better get that right, brethren, you and I alike, we hated God. Don't think for a second that you liked God or you, you grew up and you just loved God until you really came to know him. You hated God. You were God's enemy. And the Bible says, while you were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were still sinners, you had nothing to offer God. In fact, God looked at you like he looked at the Israelites in Ezekiel and said, blood, dirty, nasty baby on the side of the road, I took you in. There's nothing, about, you were helpless and I took you in. You didn't, you didn't do anything about that. And while we were still enemies of God, he came and bought us. Brethren, you deserve, just like I did, judgment from God. And he doesn't give you judgment. You deserve wrath. And instead, he makes you heirs of all creation. Everything is yours. When nothing is supposed to be yours. You're supposed to receive that. And said grace covers every one of your sins. And we saw these promises in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to see them again. Second Corinthians 6, look at verse 16 again. We'll start there. Paul says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Friends, God made you his people. He took up his dwelling place with you. He says, I'm a father to you. You're sons to me. And Paul says, what great promises that we have. And I really don't know how else to say it other than what Paul says. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You were bought, brethren. You were ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that ought to motivate you to walk in holiness. And I want you to remember, listen, you used to walk in ways of ignorance and sin. You used to. But the Bible says, put it off. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. Don't walk in those ways anymore. You are supposed to consider yourself dead to sin. Because you are. If you've been made new, you're dead to sin. Walk like it. God is holy. You walk holy. And if you call him Father, you had better act as though he is your father and, and give him the proper obedience due to a father. And finally, brethren, remember that cost of Jesus Christ, what he paid for you. It's not, listen, the Bible says it. Should we just sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means, the Bible says. That's ridiculous. How can we who are dead to sin still live in it? We can't. We won't walk that way. Jesus Christ died for his people, and I want us to have this in our minds. This is the last text here. Psalm 101. As you seek to walk in greater and greater holiness, I encourage you to remember this verse, these, this set of verses. Psalm 101, verses 3 and 4. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Brethren, fight that battle till the end. Let's pray.